morning. Welcome to Bethel. Glad to see all of you on this wonderful July Sunday. This week outside of Christmas week is the largest vacation week of the year. So uh, yeah, I was glad, uh, glad to see everyone here this week. You know, one of the things I've had the, the privilege of experience over the last two summers is coming into a greater appreciation of God's creation through visiting some of the, the national parks that our, our, our country has. I've been able to see um, the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountain National Park, and Zion National Park, and just their beauty. The beauty of those, those parks to the point of, like, pictures do not do them justice when you're standing there just in awe looking at the beauty of God's creation. And, you know, sometimes people ask you, can you tell me about the park? And you're like, words don't even describe. Like, I can't even tell you. Just, I don't, it's like rocks, but it's like glorious and beautiful rocks. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. But there's a story of a woman, and maybe some of you visited Yosemite. That's one of the ones I want to visit. I haven't been there yet. Um, you know, it's, they say it's one of the most magnificent parks in all of, of America. And there's a woman, I'm told, that visited Yosemite, and she came to one of the tour guides at the park. And she said, if I only had one hour to see Yosemite, what should I do? And he said, Madam, if you only have one hour to see Yosemite, I would go sit on that rock over there and cry if I only had one hour to see it. Just the beauty, like you want to just take it in. You know, I, I, I say that today because we're going to talk about heaven in the few moments that we have today. And as I've been studying this message, I just don't even feel like I can do justice as John is our tour guide, taking us through the wonders of heaven and how beautiful it will be. You know, John was given a, a tour by an angel. We'll start reading here in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the city, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so this guy, the angel said, John, I'm going to give you a guided tour of heaven. And so we're going to just eavesdrop on this tour that John was able to receive from this angel. Now, some people, they'll sneer and say, you know, Christians, you Christians, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. May I suggest that many times it's just the opposite. We're so earthly-minded that we're no good on earth or heaven because we need to have our minds focused on what is to come. The Bible says in Colossians 3, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not things that are on the earth. What Paul is telling the Colossian church there is we are to be a heavenly-minded people. We should be thinking about heaven. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart is not in heaven, it's because your treasure is here on earth. And may I say that it is not your treasure that God wants, according to this passage. He wants your heart. So where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And by the way, if you want to know how rich you are, if you want to know how rich you are, add up everything you have that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. That's how you can tell your wealth. What money cannot buy and what death cannot take away. What treasure do you really have in heaven? What is your wealth? in heaven. Now as we take this guided tour through heaven, I want to remind you that the book of Revelation is crammed full of symbols. And we're going to see that today in our passage. It is full of symbolism. And as we look, many of the things that we're going to see are symbols and prophecies of greater glories of heaven that the human mind cannot comprehend outside of its symbols. If you were to try to teach a kindergartner. I know we've got some teachers or former teachers in here. If you try to teach a kindergartner about nuclear physics, that's the best way that I can try to, you know, describe Jesus trying to, or the angel here in John, trying to depict for us the glories and the wonders of heaven. Because we are, are like children. When we talk about heaven, there's no way that we're going to intellectually understand this until we get to heaven and see it. So God has consented to our weakness and given us some glorious symbols to try to bring it down to our level so we can grasp what's going on. So first of all, as we take our guided tour, I want us to see the the geography of heaven, the geography of heaven, and learn that heaven is a real place. It is a material place. It is not some gaseous, mysterious, ephemeral, now you see it, now you don't smoke in mirrors. Heaven is a real place. Now if we look in the first two verses of Revelation chapter 1, I mean sorry, Revelation chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for, his, for her husband. Now what John is seeing here is a new heaven and a new earth, and it corresponds to the heaven and earth that you and I see now today. Heaven is a real place. What did Jesus say in John chapter 14? He said, I go to prepare a what for you? A place. I go to prepare a place for you. He said, he didn't say, I'm going to prepare a state of mind for you. No, that's, that's, not what, that's not what Jesus said. Now think about it. We're all going to have resurrected bodies. This is a real, literal resurrection of the body. The body is going to come back. Where is it going to go? There has to be a place for that resurrected body. If I have a resurrected body, I have to have a place for that resurrected body to exist. And that will be in this new heaven. The Bible calls it the new heavens and a new earth because this present earth 
in this present atmosphere are going to be burned up. Let's read what 2 Peter chapter 3 says. It says, But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of be in, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So now what is God going to do with our current earth what is god going to do planet earth as peter just told us here it is destined for fire you see earth itself it is stored with fire and we know that's true because science tells us that it's true now we know the the atomic nature of the universe everything has a molecular fire in it the clothes that we're all wearing have molecular fire the curtains right here beside me and behind me. The seat that you're sitting on is stored with fire. Everything in this earth down to the atomic level has that molecular fire. And even our earth at its molten core is very much like the shell of an egg is packed inside with fire. One of these days, God will unleash the power of the atom that he holds together by his mighty power and the entire atmosphere, the entire the atmospheric heavens and this earth are going to be dissolved and burned up. But at the same time, they will remain. Now you say, wait a minute, Pastor. Now when God made this earth, he gave it an eternality. To which I'll say, you're right. So what happens is God is going to take it and there's going to be this great meltdown. He's going to take that material and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And the best way I can think to, to explain this is if you take an automobile, and if you've ever been around a junkyard any time in your life, you'll see these old cars that are just you know, no longer good, and they sit in the junkyard, and then they bring this compactor, and this compactor compacts the cars up into this nice little square, and they ship them off, and what happens to those cars? That metal gets, gets burned, it gets melted down, and the metal gets melted down and down and down to the point where then it's used again to make a brand new car through the furnace and through fire. The old world, the old heavens is going to be purged by fire and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we're taking our tour through heaven. We're only going to be able to see the beauty of this capital city of Jerusalem. And I mean, we've just got a short time for this tour. And so we're going to see this new Jerusalem. The Bible speaks of this new Jerusalem as coming down from God out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Now you say, wait a minute, pastor, the, the Lord is married to a city? What's he talking about here? Well, when you talk about a city, you can talk about a place or people. Let me give you an example. You might say, Orlando is a beautiful city, to which there are some beautiful things about Orlando, but you could also say, Orlando is a wicked city. In one sentence, I'm talking about the place. In another sentence, I'm talking about the people that make up the city. You see the, the difference here between the two? 
And so that's what God's doing here in the, in the book of Revelation. So we see here that the geography of heaven, it's going to be a new heaven and it's going to be a new earth that God is going to take and completely transform. No more sin will be all, all effects of the sin that this earth currently feels will be gone because it'll be remade. Next thing I want you to see is the government of heaven. Let's look here in verses 3. Let's keep reading in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly... The faithless, faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you were with us, if you missed us last week, if you go back and listen to the podcast, we, we talked about that second death. We, we spent a whole sermon on that last week. But why is this? Heaven's such a majestic place. Why is it so special? Is because the king rules. The king is there and he rules with his people alone. That is why it is so special. When the Lord rules in majesty, we see here in this verse 4, there's a lot of no mores. What, is, what does John say here with all of these no mores? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. That's something to say amen about, isn't it? Man, we've all experienced someone close to us to think that we will never have to experience death. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, no more th pain, for the former things have passed away. As some of you sit out here this morning, you feel pain from your earthly sinful bodies. Just imagine a life with no more pain, no more headaches in the morning, no more grogginess when you get out of bed. No more fatigue. All of those things have passed away. I am so looking forward to that. Because I cannot tell you how many times I've stood over the grave. So many times I've been to the hospital to be with people writhe in pain. I've seen parents cry over wayward children. I've seen those tears of sorrow in this new heaven there will be no more tears 
our minds are so ingrained with the tears of this world that we can't hardly even imagine what that will be like. No more sorrow. The reason why there'll be no more sorrow, he tells us in verse 8, as to why there'll be no more sorrow, is because there'll be no more sin. He says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There will be no sin at all in the new heavens. Now, you all realize what has messed up this earth. It was sin. Every time you see sorrow, every time you see any tear, heartbreak, sickness, pain, it is all because of the sin that ravages this earth. We live in a world that has a curse on it. It is the curse of sin that God will break and do away with. And all semblance of that sin when he remakes the new heavens and the new earth. There will not even be any lasting residual effects in the new heavens and the new earth. So we see the geography. We see the government And I want us to see the glory of heaven in verse 9 of Revelation. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away and the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and on the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And it measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth, help me out, amethyst, and the twelfth gates were twelve pearls, and the gates made a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now what God has done here, I think, in this passage, is he's gone through the lexicon of the world and taken the things that we would say are just indescribably beautiful that we would look at, and he's thrown them all on this page to be able to help us understand the beauty of heaven. That's the best way that I can explain this. If you notice the lights of the city. It shines with the very glory of God. You do not need a moon. 
You do not need a sun because the glory of God will be its light. It has walls, it has gates. They are breathtaking in beauty. The city has walls of jasper. The city is of gold. Can you imagine just the brilliance of what this place will be? The glow of the glory of God, the colored jewels, the verdant greens, the sky blues, the red, the gold, the violet, the other colors. This will be something unlike anything our minds could ever fathom. The walls are not there to keep us in. You ask, Pastor, why, do, why are there walls in this city? They're not there to keep us in because the gates are open, it says. They're not there to keep the wicked out because there are no wicked. These walls are there solely for the glory of God, for him to show his glory. In a very real sense, they're monumental walls because these walls are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on the foundation, the 12 apostles. In Revelation, in verses 21, 15, and 16, he talks of this city and its four square. And the Bible says he measured the city with a rod and it's 12,000 stadia or furlong long. You know how far that is? That's 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. And the width, depth, and height of this city. 1,500 miles. Imagine a city being that large. Again, this, this symbolism. I don't know that exactly it would be that, that size, but God's just saying this city will be so large that it's going to be able to handle all of my children. The city is up, up, up. It is four square. And if you look at the sanctuary of the city, if you look at it, it said, I saw no temple in the city in Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, in the Old Testament, the picture, the only picture of prophecy, the temple is, is just a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, the coming of, of what is to come with this, this city. He is the one. All of that in the Old Testament is just a symbolism of what is coming with the new heavens and the, and the new earth. But the best of all is who will be in that city. Now, when I come home from a trip and I walk in the door, it's kind of a joke between my wife and kids who gets the first hug. And sometimes she will jokingly fight over with them to keep them away so I can get that hug. Now, knowing what's best for me in my marriage relationship, and who I want to hug first when I walk in the door, I make a line for my wife. She is the one I'm excited to see when I walk into that door. Jesus is the sanctuary. He is what we are there to see. Just all We've walked through and talked about how glorious, how just breathtakingly beautiful heaven will be but it will be nothing compared to who were there to see and worship. All of these Old Testament prophecies, all of these things, they're just prophecies about the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm taking 
talking about the, the magnificence of heaven, this magnificent place. But let's look here quickly at the godliness of heaven. Heaven is a made new place. And if you're not made new, you're not going to be a part of it. It says in verse 24 through 27, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring, they will bring, it in, bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, heaven is going to be a place where there will be millions upon millions, and I would venture to say billions of people that will populate heaven. So who will be there? Who will be in this glorious heaven? It will be the saints of all the ages. So as we've read our book, our Bible, all of the saints of all of the ages, from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, will be there. I would even say every little miscarried and aborted baby will be there in heaven. They will all be there populating heaven, praising our Lord and Savior. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. We prepare to go to heaven here on this life, on this earth. It is a prepared place for a prepared people. A man dreamed one time that he stood outside the gates of heaven and saw people trying to get in. And one man knocked at the gate and the voice answered and said, who is it that seeks entrance into heaven, and what is the password? The man said, I am a humanitarian. And he said, what is the password? Said, the password is charity. And the voice said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Another man knocked, and he said, who is it that seeks entrance into heaven? And he said, I am a moral man. He said, well, what is the password to get into heaven? And he said, honesty. And he said, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Another knock. Who is it that seeks entrance into heaven, and what is the password? He said, I am a religious man. What is the password into heaven? And he said, ritual. The voice said within, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Finally, one came and knocked at the gate of heaven. And he said, who is it that seeks entrance into heaven, and what is the password? The man said, in my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's simply by the cross of Jesus Christ that we receive forgiveness of sins and a promise of a life in heaven with him. That is the only way. So I ask, have you ever come to this cross? Have you ever repented of your sin? Have you ever really, I mean honestly, trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Not trusting any humanitarianism. There's nothing wrong with being someone who loves charity and people. Not trusting in your religion 
Not trusting in your membership in this church, but trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. The last thing I want you to see is the gladness of heaven. I mean, we know there will be no more sorrow there. Scriptures just told us that. But why will there be a gladness, a joy in heaven? Heaven is not just a place we go to exist, but it is a meaningful place. Let's read here in chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. We will see the face of God. Of all of the glories that we just read about, the thing that will put us to our knees, the thing that will drive us to worship is when we see the face of God. There's an old hymn writer who wrote this song. I'm going to read the first verse in the chorus too. I sang this as a kid in church. It says, Sometimes the day seems long, our trials hard to bear, we're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away. That could be today. All tears forever over in God's eternal day. And the Course says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Chew on those words this week. Bravely run the race. Why hope? Why do we have hope in this life? Because one day, one day, according to Revelation chapter 22, we're guaranteed that we will see the face of Christ. And all life's sorrow all life's trouble will be gone. What a glorious day that will be. But until that day, we must bravely run the race of this life.